Okay, you guys are coming right over here, right in the middle, right over here. Come here, come here. Come here, girls. Come here, come here. Right here, right in the middle with some older people. Okay, you can sit right here. All right, have a seat. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Nice group. Wow. You know what this is? First aid kit. Yes. What are some things you might find in a first aid kit? Yes. Band-aids. Very good. Yes. What else you think? Yes. Very good. You guys sit and be quiet now. Okay. Now this, anything else that you might think of, find in a first aid kit? Thermometer. This one doesn't have one, but yes, be some good stuff. Well, you know, this, this thing actually says it has like 170 different things in here. I think 160 of them are Band-Aids. But <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff here. This is a wrap to put around you. It's called a survival wrap. And then here's some stuff for burns and some other things to, if you have a, a wound on you, uh, something that hurts on you, you can put that on to keep it from getting infected. And then there's aspirin and Tylenol and all kinds of stuff. So, this is what a first aid kit is, and it's good to have first aid kits. Where do you think are some good spots to have a first aid kit? Yes. Yeah, that's a good one. In the woods? Yes. Yeah, in your bedroom, that's a good spot. In the park? By the pool. Yeah, these are all good spots. Okay. How about in your car is a good spot. In your home, you've mentioned home. Uh, what do you think about church? Think church is a good place to have a first aid kit? Yeah, I think we have one in the kitchen. All right. These are, these are, these are good things to have. First aid kit is good to have, and it's important to know how to use it, right? Now, we can have a first aid kit, but if we don't know how to use it, that's not too, too good, is it? If we can open this and see, okay, that's a Band-Aid, but we don't know how to get a Band-Aid open, we're in trouble. Or if we have a cut and we don't know what to put on the cut, that can be bad. So... It's important, number one, to have a first aid kit, and it's important, number two, to know how to use it. Now, what's that have to do with the Bible and the Lord? Yeah, you listen. Okay, the Bible is like a first aid kit. Now, when we go through life, we can get some hurts. How are some things that we can get hurt. Now, we're talking not now about falling and getting your knee scraped or that kind of thing, but when we live life and we live life with other people, how can we get hurt? What do you think? Think about it. 
How can we hurt people or how can people hurt us? Yes. We can lie about people. You ever have anybody lie about you? That hurts. That hurts real bad. Well, you know, the Bible tells us what we can do when people lie about us. Do you think the Bible tells us, <clears throat> okay, somebody lied about me, so I'm going to go lie about them? You think that's what the Bible tells us to do? No, it does not. The Bible tells us a soft answer turns away anger. In other words, we respond to it the way we should. And there are other things where we can get hurt. You know, maybe as we go through life, we have different questions. Not really sure what the answer is to that question or what we should do in different situations. The Bible is our first aid kit. It tells us. So, just as we have a first aid kit and should have a first aid kit in different spots and know how to use it, the Bible as our first aid kit can help us with every hurt we have, with every situation we face. The Bible can show us the answers and we need to know how to use it. Now, some of you are memorizing verses, right? You know, it's really good when you memorize verses. Boom, something that takes place in your life, and you think, man, that verse I learned, that'll really help me with this. And that's where we learn to use what we know, okay? So as you go to children's church, junior church, Sunday school, and Awana, and as you listen to the Bible and learn verses from the Bible, remember that the Bible is our first aid kit to help us when we're hurt or when we have questions that need to be answered. Okay, thank you very much. God bless. Children's Church, Junior Church. Boy, they're wound this morning, aren't they? Man. <laughs> I think we need to pray for the teachers out there. <laughs> uh, let's, let's bow our heads before the Lord. Our Father, we do thank you so much for the privilege of being here together this morning. And Lord, we do ask that as we open your word that you would please teach us and Lord, we do thank you so much for our children. Thank you for them. And Lord, as our children are in the nursery and in children's church and junior church, we ask that you would richly bless them. And for those who are teaching them and caring for them, we pray that you just minister to them and meet their needs. And Lord, as we open your word together, teach us, we pray, and help us to reply and respond to your word in obedience and submission to your Lordship. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All righty, there's an insert in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. We have been considering together, turning toward joy, discovering a joy that circumstances cannot change from Paul's letter to the Philippian believers. 
And we have looked together in verses 1 through 26 of chapter 1 at the joy of community and the joy of adversity. And we continue last week with verses 27 through 30, and we continue with these verses today as we look at the joy of integrity. And I'm going to read for us verses 27 through 30. Paul is writing to the believers in the city of Philippi, and he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Now we have considered together the difference between happiness and biblical joy. We have learned that the passionate pursuit of happiness, the fleeting feeling of exhilaration, is elusive. In contrast, we have learned that the promised possibility of biblical joy, biblical joy, the settled conviction that God sovereignly, lovingly, and wisely controls the events of life for each and every believer's good and for His glory, is available to all of us who submit to and obey him. So happiness is one thing that is fleeting. It comes and goes, depending on the happenings in our life, the happenstances, as some would say. In contrast, biblical joy, that settled conviction that God sovereignly and lovingly and wisely controls every event of my life as his child for my good and for his glory is available to all of us if we will submit to him and obey what he has to say. So, we have learned and we're going to continue to learn today about the joy that we can have during times of difficulty, how we can have the joy of integrity. As This is in your notes that you have. As a coach, presenting his game plan to his players, Paul sent his friends his four priorities for success, four priorities that would enable the Philippian believers and by application that will enable us to be characterized by the joy of integrity. Last week, we looked at priority number one, which was conduct, where Paul writes in verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we looked at priority number two, which was and is consistency. And Paul writes again in Philippians 1.27, so whether I come and see you or remain absent. He was exhorting the Philippian believers to conduct themselves in a consistent manner, whether he was with them or whether he was not. Now we pick it up today with priority number three, which is cooperation. Notice in uh, verse 27 again, 
Paul writes, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul wanted the Philippian believers to understand if they were going to survive the time of persecution that they were presently going through and that they would experience in the future, he is trying to help them understand that they cannot do it alone. He is pointing out to them that they need to stand together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if they were going to stand firm and stand firm for their Savior and Lord Jesus Christ during a very difficult time, they would have to do it by joining hands, figuratively and maybe literally, joining hands to stand firm together during that difficult time. Winston Churchill once wrote about uh, British General Tudor, who commanded a division facing the German assault of 1918. This is what Churchill wrote. The impression I had of Tudor was an iron, of an iron peg hammered into the frozen ground, immovable. Boy, that's easy for us to think about in these days, isn't it? Think of this frozen ground that we have been experiencing. We've had somewhat of a thaw, but the frozen ground's coming back. Think of an iron peg hammered into this frozen soil. There's no way you're going to move it. Not in the temperatures we've been having. You put it in when the ground is kind of thawed out, and then it freezes. There is no way you're going to move that thing. I remember uh, back in Romulus, where we had our two acres, we were able to uh, hang clothes outside to dry in the summertime. And uh, the time came where we were cleaning up the backyard and getting it ready for, to move and sell and so on and so forth. Well, this, this clothesline we had looked kind of ugly, actually. Uh, it had a big concrete base. Then it had these uh, metal bars coming up and like a T, and then long rope, and then another T on the other end. Well, I said to Hope, I think I, I really should get that out because it's kind of ugly, and next people who come probably aren't going to want it. Uh, it served us well with three little kids, but uh, we didn't think it was going to serve well for whoever might want to buy the house. So I had a little S10 pickup truck, and I thought, well, okay, I'll hook a chain to it, and I'll pull it out. Well, that concrete base was a whole lot bigger than I thought it was. But Hope said it looked really funny when I did finally get it out of the ground. I'm pulling it out back in the two, the two acres behind us, dragging it across the, the yard, and it's bouncing up and down, and I got it back to where I, we wanted to chuck it. But uh, that probably looked almost as funny as when we used to work in our garden. I had a, a mower. It was more like a little tractor. And we had this thing, it was a, her, a harrow, but it was only about this wide, and it had a pole coming up. And in order to get it to dig into the ground, I would stand on the back of it and hold on to that, that thing that came up, and Hope would pull me on the tractor. So there we are, going across the garden like this. And we'd get up to the end, I'd jump off, swing the thing around, I'd say, keep going, Hope. She'd keep going, get back, and I'd jump back on it. And we had a friend up the road. He said, you city slicker, you. 
because he saw me doing it. He just died laughing. He said, you're a city slicker. Well, I did live in the city a while, but we had some real experiences there. But going back to that clothesline and to that iron peg in the frozen ground, that's what God wants us to be during difficult times. It's important to understand we cannot do it alone. Now, we have the Holy Spirit of God, certainly, and there are times when we are alone, when it's just us and God. But as a general rule, as a church family, when we have opportunity to be together and to support one another and to pray for one another and to be there for each other, we need to figuratively and sometimes uh, actually hold hands and stand firm during the difficult times. When we have people within our church family who go through difficult times, we need to be there. We need to be there for one another. Now, Paul was concerned about the attitude that these believers had toward those who were outside their fellowship, and we should. We should always have concern for people who don't know Christ. Always. But that is not to the neglect of caring for each other. The way we will most effectively reach out to a world that needs Christ is by loving one another and being there for each other so that the world can see that. And Jesus said that himself. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How is Seneca Community Church going to grow spiritually and numerically? By truly loving each other. By truly embracing one another. The world sees that, and the world says, I want that. But if a, if a world looks at the church family, not that this is going on, so don't, don't read into what I'm saying, but if a, the world looks at a church family and just sees bickering and arguing and fighting going on, do you, do you think people want anything to do with that? They have to deal with that Monday through Friday. Why deal with it on Sunday? I, I, I want to live in peace. We, so we need to be attractive by showing our love for the Lord and each other. Now, Paul speaks here about striving together. He uses a Greek uh, word from which we get the English word athlete. And this speaks of, of unity, <clears throat> striving together, struggling side by side as, as athletes, as a team would against the team they're playing against. Today... <clears throat> Uh, Keith is exceptionally happy, if you haven't noted that, because NASCAR starts today down in Daytona. Daytona is the Super Bowl of NASCAR. So if you didn't have any other plans today, 1 o'clock, NASCAR, Daytona. And you, you will see, you know, it's a whole lot more than this. Watching people go around a circle. It's a whole lot more than that. You see pit crews working together. You see spotters watching the track, working with the pit crew, working with the driver. You see the driver working with the pit crew and with the spotters. They're all working together, and they're in unity. Why? Because they want to beat the other 42 teams that are out there. That's why. 
That's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about striving together. English poet and novelist Rudyard Kipling, he penned a verse. I just love this verse. I heard it uh, first from our our one son-in-law, and and this is how it goes. This is the law of the jungle, as old and as true as the sky. And the wolf that keep it may prosper, and the wolf that shall break it must die. The strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. Now apply that to a church family. The strength of our church family is the individual Christian. And the strength of the individual Christian is the church family. Just as the wolf survives by being strong individually and strong as a pack, same is true of the church. Same is true of believers individually and as us as a church family. When it comes for standing for truth in times of pressure, the strength of the church is a Christian and the strength of the Christian is the church. Priority number four, courage. And Paul writes about that in verses 28 through 30, which I read earlier. And he speaks of courage to encounter persecution. Paul warned the Philippian believers not to be alarmed by their enemies. The word alarmed was used of horses that were frightened or spooked by something exterior, something outside of themselves. And whatever that particular thing was, it scared the horse and caused it to spook and to run in an uncontrolled stampede. Uh, Hope was in a summer missions trip out in British Columbia uh, the summer before we, um, not before we, well, yeah, it was a year before we were married. And Where she went, the lady had racehorses. She had horses that did the barrel thing, you know. Well, Hope was on a horse, and she was with another girl who was on a mission trip with her. Well, this other girl was accustomed to riding fast horses, but Hope wasn't. Well, this girl took off on her horse. You know, Hope's horse did. Took off right after her. And that thing took off and... And I wasn't there to see this, but I can only imagine Hope was holding on for dear life, man, because that horse was a racehorse, and it had been, in a manner, spooked by what happened and just went off uncontrollably. And Paul is concerned that the Philippian believers are going to get spooked by what's going on around them, that they're going to get scared, and they're going to go off on all kinds of directions, and not be together, and not stand together. Now, most biblical scholars date Paul's writing of his letter to the Philippian believers around 60 to 63 A.D. That was quite a while ago. Well, if, if that's true, and I have no reason to believe why it isn't, why that's not an accurate assessment, if that is true... It was very, very close, obviously, to A.D. 64 
which was the year that Nero surpassed himself in cruelty when he set fire to Rome. Now, obviously, he didn't do it. He had his servants do the dirty work. And he set fire to the city of Rome. Now, one of the few eyewitness historians of that day actually wrote about this. His name was Tacitus. And this is what Tacitus wrote. Listen to what he says. To get rid of the report that he had ordered the fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on Christians. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, that's Jesus Christ, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And a deadly superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world meet and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who confessed Christ. Then an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of arson as of hatred. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames. Now, no doubt, some of the Christians who received this letter from Paul experienced that very, very persecution. The one started by Nero, and Nero was a, was a nutcase. He was cruel, he was ugly, and he surpassed himself in cruelty by setting the city of Rome on fire and then blaming it on the Christians. And the persecution that broke out among the Christians in 64 AD was unbelievable. And it was all based on a lie, a fabrication by Nero. And so these believers, these very same believers that received this letter from Paul, some of them no doubt went through that very persecution. And I can only imagine that some of them thought of Paul's words and thought about what he had written. And they knew that he had gone through tremendous persecution and were no doubt encouraged by his life and his testimony. And so Paul speaks here, first of all, about courage to encounter persecution. And then he talks about courage to endure pain. Paul regarded suffering for Christ a privilege. Now, we don't want to misunderstand that. We shouldn't go around looking for persecution or pain. But if we are true followers and, and consistent followers of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, there will be times that we will not only have to encounter persecution, but endure pain for our faith in Christ. A gentleman by the name of John Huss lived from 1369 to 1415. He was thrown into prison for his faith, and 
just two weeks prior to his death, as he was in a dungeon, he wrote these words. I am greatly consoled by that saying of Christ, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you. It bids us rejoice in these tribulations. It is easy to read it aloud and expound it, but difficult to live out. O most holy Christ, give me a fearless heart, a right faith, a firm hope, a perfect love, that for thy sake I may lay down my life with patience and joy. And he did. If my history serves me correctly, I believe John Huss was burned at the stake for his faith in Christ. And then Paul speaks about courage to emulate him, to imitate him, to follow his example. Now, Paul realized that suffering was no abstract term for the Philippian believers. This was real. This was true. Many of them had seen him suffer uh, when the church at Philippi had been started. And we can read about this in the book of Acts. When the church was started in Philippi and Paul was there as one of the founders of the church, he was hounded by a demon-possessed girl. He was slandered, mobbed, stripped, beaten. He was thrown into a dungeon. And the courage that these Philippian believers had seen in Paul in the past was a courage from which they would draw their power and follow his example and emulate his testimony. Now, Paul believed that persecution would be the lot of every believer until the end. In Acts 14.22, Paul states, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, we don't like to read about that stuff. We would just rather bypass that, wouldn't we? But Paul says that's how it is. And he also encourages us with the promise that he expresses in Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, it's often very difficult for us, no doubt, to maintain an attitude of joy as we're going through those times. But Paul tries to help us keep perspective. He says, my children, my, my fellow believers, what you're going through is not to be compared with the joy that we will have one day when we are with our Savior in Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we may be prone to think, and logically so right now, that, okay, persecution of this sort, we haven't experienced it, and maybe we never will, and yet again, maybe we will. Did any of you see in the news this past week, and I don't know all the details of it, but I saw enough to, to encourage me to mention it today. Persecution can take its form in many ways. Your kids in school will, will experience a certain amount of persecution if they stand for Christ. Your grandkids will face a certain amount of persecution if they stand for Christ. If they don't, then life will be a bowl of cherries, pretty much. 
But if our children and our grandchildren take a stand for Jesus Christ, they will suffer a certain amount of persecution. Maybe societal more than anything, but it will be there. And if we in our workplaces and we in society and we as we have contact with people uh, week after week, if we stand firmly for Jesus Christ, there will be a certain amount of persecution we will experience. Paul says it. Did you see in the news, I don't don't remember where it was or anything about the details really of it, but there was pressure being put on business people because of their convictions, they were not able to do certain things that they were being asked to do in, in light of homosexuality. And there was a, a homosexual couple being married somewhere, and the baker said, I, I will not make a cake for your wedding. I will not do that. They came to him to make a cake, and he said, no, I, I won't do that because my convictions don't allow me to make a cake for a homosexual wedding. Do you know that that guy's business went belly up, went bankrupt? Because people began to pressure and and tell people not to go there. Within days, the business went belly up. Now, is that a form of persecution? Yes, it is. It is. Because that guy took a stand and said, no, I'm not going to bake a cake for a homosexual couple and their wedding. I'm going to do it. Was that his prerogative to do that? I, I think it was. But as a Christian, even more so, he, he took a stand. And he was interviewed, and I just saw a little bit of it. He said, uh, I believe the Word of God. I believe what the Word of God says. I could not violate my convictions. I had to make this decision. And he lost his business because of it. That's persecution. And that's the kind of persecution we could face. It's a bit more subtle, isn't it? Nevertheless, it's persecution. And we may very well have to suffer for the name of Christ. And some Christians might have gone to this guy. I'm sure he's heard it from both ends. And I'm sure some have gone to him, man, what's the big deal? Just make the cake. You're not putting your endorsement on their wedding by making a cake. Just make the cake. He didn't believe he could do that. And I applaud him for that. That took courage. That took courage to encounter persecution. It took courage to endure pain. And it took courage to emulate Paul. And he did. But you know, there have been some great men and women uh, through the years who have been saddled with disabilities and adversities, but they've overcome them and God has blessed them. Let me give some illustrations. Cripple him and you have a Sir Walter Scott. Lock him in a prison cell, you have a John Bunyan. Bury him in the snows of Valley Forge, you have a George Washington. Raise him in abject poverty, and you have an Abraham Lincoln. 
deafen him, and you have a Ludwig, Ludwig von Beethoven, who obviously wrote music deaf a whole lot better than I can write it hearing. Call him a slow learner, get this one. Call him a slow learner, and you have an Albert Einstein. These are people, for the most part here, people who acknowledged the presence of God in their lives. And they acknowledged that, yeah, man, this is an adversity, but by surrendering myself to his lordship in my life, I can bring glory to him through this adversity. And so can you see, taking the example of this gentleman who took this stand as a baker, can you see how important it would be for him to have his church family come around him at a time like this? Can you see that? And can you see how important it will be for him and how important it will be for us as when we go through these times of adversity to stand together? And we have kids in our church today who are taking a stand for Christ. We need to let them know we love them, we're praying for them, and we're there for them. They need to know it. And we have adults who, to varying degrees, are going through difficulties and adversities, and many of it, most of it, largely because of their stand for Jesus Christ. We need to be there for each other. So in order to be there for each other, we need to know what's going on in each other's lives, don't we? And that probably takes a little bit more than Sunday morning greeting each other and having some deacon up front yelling at us to get back in our seats. You you get my point. If we're really going to be there for each other, man... It's a whole lot more than just showing up Sunday morning. Reaching out. Let's continue. Let's continue to reach out to Shane and Jeannie and the family. Let's continue to reach out to Larry and Mary. Let's continue to reach out to Rocky and Wilma. This is so important. We need to be there for each other as a church family. As I read Paul's words here to the Philippian believers, uh, I was reminded of a famous speech that was given by Winston Churchill when he was 65 years old. The Germans were about to invade in England, and the English were undermanned. They were ill-prepared. They were poorly armed, and... Experts predicted that when the Germans invaded England, it wasn't going to last any more than a couple weeks. They would be done. Well, that may have been the case were it not for Churchill's leadership. Here's part of what he said. The Battle of France is over. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us on this island or lose the war. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties 
and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will say this was their finest hour. We know the rest of the story, don't we? Those people stood together, and they were triumphant as a people. And we can be triumphant in Christ. We, just as the Philippian believers, will be able to be characterized by the joy of integrity, even under the most difficult persecution and and the most difficult adversity, by remembering that priority number one is conduct, number two, consistency, number three, cooperation, number four, courage, courage to encounter persecution, courage to endure pain, courage to emulate Paul. And by prayerfully embracing these priorities, we will be able to be characterized by the joy of integrity, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words of Paul to these Philippian believers. And Lord, we know by looking into history that these people really went through it. And Lord, there are believers who through the centuries have gone through some tremendous, awful persecution. And Lord, even though we have not experienced that as yet, we know that we perhaps could or that our persecution could be more subtle, but nevertheless very hurtful. We pray that we would embrace these priorities and that we would be characterized by the joy of integrity. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we'll share praises and prayer requests and go to the Lord together in prayer.